This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Andrew Quilty. Andrew is an award-winning photojournalist, and he joined me for an in-depth conversation about his latest book, This is Afghanistan, 2014 to 2021. The stunning book is a visual record of the nine years that Andrew spent living and working in the complex, beautiful and war-torn country of Afghanistan. Andrew shares his experiences photographing the war in Afghanistan, capturing life, destruction, conflict and the natural landscape. Links to some of the images that we discuss are in the podcast description. This is Afghanistan is published by Maigunya Press, an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. And it is my absolute pleasure and honour, I should say, to welcome onto this program a first-time guest to the show, Andrew Quilty. Andrew has produced two amazing books, the first of which was called August in Kabul, America's Last Days in Afghanistan, which was released in 2022 through Melbourne University Publishing. And then there's this beautiful, very large hardback book that I've got with me right now, and it's called This is Afghanistan 2014 to 2021. It's been published in a kind of limited edition run through Maigunya Press, which is an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. It is a very, very special book for so many reasons, not just because it's aesthetically beautiful and so wonderful to flick through and read, but it's also got a gravitas in terms of the content and, of course, the person behind it, Andrew Quilty. For those who aren't familiar with Andrew's work, and I know that many people would be, whether they were aware of it or not, because they would have no doubt seen his photographs in many places, Andrew is an award-winning photojournalist and he has produced this book as a visual record of his nine years in a war-ravaged country, Afghanistan. He was one of a small number of journalists who were in Kabul to witness the withdrawal of the military forces from Afghanistan. And I know that we all remember that moment, or I certainly do, watching it from afar on the news. We'll get into some of those moments which feature in this book, but we'll also go back to the start of Andrew's time in Afghanistan. So I welcome Andrew and his many Walkley Awards onto the show. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amy. You have quite a substantial bio, and I know we were saying off air you were feeling unproductive, but I think maybe is that why you're so successful and have achieved so much, is that are you a restless soul? Oh, um, possibly. I have felt, well, yes, you're, you're right. I, I, I did say that I had felt a little unproductive in the last um, little while, and, yeah, maybe that has something to do with having been a little more productive in the years that we'll probably talk about today. There's a lot of amazing work here and no doubt I'm guessing as a photographer there are a lot of shots that didn't make it into this book and that no doubt didn't even get seen by anyone other than yourself. So there's a lot of work that must get produced over there. Yeah, actually I um, the, the first step in what was quite a long process of putting the book This Is Afghanistan together was to go through all of the photos I took in Afghanistan over the years, and many of which I'd never seen before, I'd, I'd taken and then, um, you know, dumped to a hard drive to be considered um, many years later. And I, I think in the end, it was about 350,000 photos that I that I made my way through to, um, which eventually got um, whittled down to about 180 for the book. That's a, that's a big hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> A big bundle of hard drives. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of clicking. Um, <laughs> I'm really, really excited to talk about these photographs and I want to get into that. But I also want to talk about the fact that there's a lot of helpful text in the book, not lots as in, I guess, quantity, but in terms of providing context and richness to some of the backstories to these photos. And I know they stand alone and I certainly don't think you need to have that. But to me, it added a whole nother dimension to hear from you at the start of each year and get that background of, you know, what was happening geopolitically, but then also bringing in the human stories that you have in these photographs. What was your thinking behind that? Because I know perhaps some photojournalists may 
shy away from the written word you have certainly you know engaged in it but you know how do you work with that when you're putting together a book that's focused on photographs but obviously text is still a core component it was really afghanistan that made me realize the limitations of photography and that's mostly because i found that everything i pointed my camera at in afghanistan was imbued with so much context that couldn't be captured within the frames of, of, of a photograph and which needed to be added in some way, most often for me in the form of the written word. And so I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I to be honest, I, I disagree with you when you said that you don't think it's absolutely necessary to have the words accompany the, the images, but for me, just to to fully flesh out the issues that the individual photographs point to a, a very specific instance of, it's really only through words, at least in the medium of the print media, that you can fully expand on the on the larger issues. Mm. I'm glad that you you're disagreeing with me because I'm coming at that point from an art historical background. So I think some of the images when I looked at them. I desperately wanted to know the context of it, but I also just appreciated the image for its own composition and aesthetic quality and content or themes that are quite universal in some ways, but as you say, are still very specific to that person on that day in that set of circumstances. So obviously they're, they're both two different things, I guess, but mm. I still really appreciate a lot of these photographs for just looking at them and having that first experience of not knowing you know, mm. what's yeah, behind a, it. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And and maybe there's something in that, that a successful photograph is one that draws you in by visual means. And then I suppose bolsters the, the context that is not immediately visible in the image, which, which you, you know, need to go searching for, or in this mm. instance, um, you know, read more in the, in the, in the caption or the story. Yeah, it sets you off on a path. Hmm. Like, I wonder if you've had this very often, but one of the photographs I'm thinking of that possibly exemplifies this for me is one from April 2015 in Helmand province with Gul Ahmad, who's an infant boy, as you have written, who was suffering from acute malnutrition. And he had this veil, a scarf that his mother had put across his face and his body you know, you could see the whites of his eyes just looking through. But initially when I looked, I only saw the veil and then I saw the boy underneath the veil. And that was just, you know, it had so many layers, not just physical layers, but perceptual layers and contextual layers. And it just was a really interesting image to be struck by, I guess, mm. for me. Yeah, that, that's one of those images that is full of kind of contradictions and is very... Um... It's difficult to, or I suppose it can be difficult to reconcile what might be an initial response to the, the aesthetic qualities of the, of the image mm. with what it is actually showing, which is this you know, acutely malnourished boy who, who um, was lying under this, this um, scarf that his mother had placed across him to keep the, keep the flies off him in this very hot uh, hospital ward. Yeah. Yeah. It's this double page, which I'm glad it is like, you know, it's got that large quality to it. And it's like, as you say, I think once you realize that it doesn't just have some kind of formal aesthetic quality that you almost start judging yourself for having appreciated it because that's yeah. how I felt. Yeah, very much, very much yeah. so. Actually, um, you know, you, you said something similar in relation to the book as a whole in your introduction and it evokes some sort of conflicts in me. It's like, you know, should a, a book that is full of such confronting imagery and themes, you know, even be in such sort of beautiful packaging, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's full of ethical dilemmas, the, mm. the whole process. Yeah, no doubt as a photographer, there's also moments where you are looking through a lens, but there is this layer of voyeurism that is essential to photography and a whole range of other photographic mediums. How are you confronted by it when you're out 
taking photographs and sometimes potentially a very violent scenes whether it's just happened or happened a week ago or even later you know how do you approach it i think one way that me and the photographers whom i admire and look up to and and whose methods of work i try to mimic to an extent one way that we avoid that voyeuristic perspective is mm. is by typically using a, a relatively wide angled lens which means you can't stand back and observe these scenes from afar where you're detached from what's going on. You really have to be um, in the scene, which means either putting yourself in the same um, level of danger as those you're photographing, or I guess it forces you to confront the same moral. It forces you to be a part of the, the scene in a way that makes um, avoiding any moral conflict much harder if that makes mm. sense mm -hmm. uh, so yeah you, you you really really have to be a part of what you're photographing and of course you know that you can dive into that and make very valid assessments for, for instance just me knowing that i have a an australian passport and while i might be in a scene that is either dangerous or um, morally fraught while the people i'm photographing that's their life and they and they are living there they have no choice to leave mm. i can um at any moment say okay i've had enough um this is too dangerous or i don't feel comfortable and i'm leaving and um you know that those are the they are also um the, the moral conundrums and the ethical conundrums that me and my my colleagues are confronted by and will probably continue to be maybe haunted by in the future yeah yeah it's so hard for me to get my head around and I haven't been there. A lot of journalists, I'm making generalizations here, but a lot of them will say, I'm impartial or I strive to be objective. And we've just kind of been picking up on this thing of, you know, you really have to be part of it when you're on the ground with your camera. So there's that high-minded, I guess, view of journalism as this font of truth and objectivity, but then you've got here something different, but I think it's still capturing a deep truth. I wonder, what you see the role of subjectivity being and and knowing your subjects as well you obviously have a lot of friends in afghanistan you've you've made a lot of friends how do you perceive those relationships when you're photographing people well i mean it wasn't that often that i was actually photographing my friends one instance where that did begin to happen was towards the end of my my stint in afghanistan when the Taliban started encroaching on on Kabul, where I lived and where um, the majority of my friends and, and colleagues also lived. And when those friends and colleagues started to become the people that I was turning to, to photograph or to interview, because they were all of a sudden the ones who were under this this very real threat, whereas up until that point, well, yes, the the war did affect Kabul, and and there were very regular, extreme, but isolated instances of violence. The war, the gun battles, and the front lines, and the um, the artillery, and the the mortars and the machine guns, that more traditional war, I suppose, was being fought mostly out in the in the rural regional areas. Mm. And so when when that started to close in on on Kabul, yeah, it, it was my friends and and colleagues and and you know even me who who were being more impacted. And that was when I I realised it was going to be much more difficult for me to be impartial because it was, you know, it was my friends who were all of a sudden having to consider fleeing the country. Um, I even had to consider mm. fleeing the country, and yeah, that made it a lot more difficult to view the Taliban objectively. It, it was very difficult not to have a lot more sympathy for those within Kabul who didn't want to be there anymore or for whom it was too dangerous to be there. Whereas outside of Kabul, where I would often go to work, the people I was I was speaking to and photographing were, I could go there, I could photograph the war and then come back to Kabul and, and it, the war stayed out there. Mm. Well, when we're at that 
point at the end, that moment where the Taliban's, you know, coming in and there's this mad rush to evacuate over a couple of weeks. I feel like when I was watching this on the news and also seeing the commentary from the federal government, there was criticism about the fact that these visas and arrangements for people who had interpreted for the Australian military, for others who had facilitated relations between different people, the locals in Afghanistan that have put themselves at great risk now with the Taliban returning, you know, there was all this criticism of, of the Australian government. You haven't done enough to look after them, to get them out, to expedite the process, the visas. And then it just kind of died out, I, I feel like, in terms of the, the critiques and the ongoing follow-up. And no doubt there were some people out there following up, but I wonder, you know, what truly did happen? You know, are there still people who have been left behind that were supporting, for example, Australian military forces who were fearful, are fearful, have been affected or are affected still by having that relationship and you know, now being potentially compromised or, or under threat in this new regime, the, the, the old guard Taliban that's back. I'm, I'm sure there still are Afghans in Afghanistan who have very legitimate cause for resettlement in Australia. I know that when Australia opened up applications for emergency resettlement for Afghans, there was a, a huge number of applications, I think over 200,000. And um, all those applications are being very, very slowly sorted through and, and assessed. And, and, you know, a small percentage of them are resulting in visas being granted. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a um, it's all dependent on on policy, you know, what uh, and the terms of the visa criteria and the vast majority of those applicants will most likely not be granted visas. I'm certainly aware of a number of, of people and, and, you know, now friends who who don't really fit into any of the very specific criteria that are required for these visas to be granted or for asylum to be granted. And it's these people who are having great difficulty, you know, people who were soldiers with the Afghan National Army, but who didn't necessarily have any close links with the US government or the Australian government or any of the others, which is often what is the difference between someone like this person I'm, I'm thinking of being granted asylum and not. So yeah, I mean, there are, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people that just fall in these gaps and who are just as likely, if not more likely, to be under you know, really serious threat and, you know, who are being sought by the, by the Taliban. Many of them are in neighbouring countries, Iran or, or Pakistan, as a temporary measure. But those, th those options are, are not sustainable and are fraught with a whole raft of, of, of other problems. Mm. When I was looking at some of these photographs, one that struck me that I don't know, it stands out for many reasons, some very obvious reasons that we're in a very lavish interior environment, but also that, I don't know, it almost looks like a tableau or a painting in a way, in the way that the, the people are sitting and talking and gesturing. I'm talking about a photograph which depicts uh, US General John Campbell Dr. Abdullah Abdullah and President Ashraf Ghani, which you write was at a dinner marking John Campbell's departure from Afghanistan. And that photo to me is just so striking, obviously because it's not depicting a war-ravaged or war-torn scene, it's not depicting the average Afghani. It makes you think, here are these people comfortable in this room and they're eating this lovely dinner and we've just seen this malnourished child who is covered by this mother's scarf and then here they are kind of separated from a totally different reality. So, yeah, that was the other thing that jolted me. So it feels like there's just this massive disconnect or departure from all of the other photographs we see in the lead up to this one that you just kind of, I don't know, get shocked into a different state. I wonder if you could reflect on how that photo came to be and the composition of it and some of those aesthetics, but also, I guess, how you think it says something unique. Mm, it, it's funny. It's, that's one photo that often gets commented on, I think, I think probably because of its 
unexpectedness of the mm-hmm. the scene. I think, you know, it's probably no different to almost any other country where you have the the, the powerful and the elite living in a on a different stratosphere to to the average citizen. The difference in Afghanistan is obviously that the gap between the two is probably much greater. But um yeah, how did I end up there? I, I had um I'd been commissioned to photograph for a story about General John Campbell. And we had been the journalist and I had been granted permission to to shadow him for about a week. And that involved wow. a lot of flying around in helicopters and planes all over the country, visiting his soldiers and, and Afghan soldiers and and um, culminated at the end of the week in this this lavish farewell dinner, and then the following day a, um, a farewell ceremony with you know lots of dignitaries and you know in, in this case the president and the and essentially his his vice president, and you know it, it goes to show how interconnected th- those two institutions were the U.S. military and the and the Afghan Republican government and and how reliant they each were on one another. Um, certainly the, the Afghan government at that time was extremely reliant on the, on the US military and their, their, not only their military might and, and prowess and all their you know, technical capacity, but also their support that they offered their Afghan counterparts with training and equipment and logistical support uh, and so on, which as that support started to wane, the, the cracks started to show in the in the Afghan uh, security forces' ability to maintain security on their own, and mm. once it was almost all gone in those those final days, what what a lot of people probably forget is that um, August in twenty twenty one is is remembered now as the month that the Taliban returned to power, but less recalled is the fact that it was also the last month of the U.S. military's withdrawal from the country. And it just so happened that they, I mean, it, it wasn't mm. a coincidence. It was, um, there are many reasons that it that it did end up coinciding on the on the calendar. But um, yeah, it coincided did when, you know, the two, as the Americans were making their final departure from the airport, the, the Taliban was slowly, you know, encroaching mm. on it, almost, almost filling the, the void that the Americans were leaving and and ended up arriving early, really, because the Afghan government and the security forces weren't capable of filling that that void. Yeah. I do remember that now that you say it had to be sped up, I guess, the Americans mm. going, oh, gosh, we really have to leave now. <laughs> like- yeah. Well, well, it was, yeah, it wasn't um, initially, you know, they were going to, they were planning a, a very sort of orderly withdrawal and, you know, that would be, you know, slowly taking their, you know, their infrastructure apart and, and, and flying it out. And then, yeah, just the, 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 the quicker they did it, the quicker the Taliban started filling that void. And in the end, there was, it was a real race to the door. And um, it was actually, I mean, the, the Americans were actually very lucky that the Taliban kind of went easy on them at the end you know the Mm -hmm. americans were so vulnerable they were i mean they were in the end they were surrounded in this airport by the taliban i mean had the taliban wanted to they could have you know taken out a lot of revenge for the past 20 years and the the losses that they had incurred at the time but um i guess yeah in the end through diplomacy and and pragmatism they essentially worked with the americans to facilitate that withdrawal in, I should say, a um, a very limited um, period of time after which they would, they said they would no longer cooperate. Yeah, yeah. And just looking at some of the photos right at the end of the book, which do capture this time period, it's really interesting to see because some of them are, I don't know, you can feel the rush in the photo, obviously. There's like some that the headlights that are shining on a dark population and you can kind of feel the vibration and the movement of the night and the big crowds of people. And then there are other ones that for anyone who actually has the book at home, it's 336 um, is the page I'm talking about, but there's this kind of desolate 
looking scene with mountains in the background and power lines and and then a solitary military looking plane in the middle of the shot and then all of these individuals either sitting on the dirt or standing up in different kind of spaces but there's this kind of stillness or static quality to that image you know there's so many really interesting moments of dynamism and different levels of dynamics that you're capturing in these photographs of a time that obviously, as you've just been saying, was full of so much upheaval and unpredictability. Mm-hmm. Could you reflect on that? Because you've talked about a bit about your time with your friends and reflecting on how that, you know, suddenly you're in the middle of it all with them. You know, how does this play into your photographs and your the instincts you've got to take these shots at the end? They do feel like they have a different quality to some of the more early ones, to me at least, you know, because there is this almost feeling like you are embedded within a moment, a very particular time. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't, um, I hadn't thought of that before. I, um, look, I mean, that, that period was vastly more emotionally charged than any of the, the time I'd spent in Afghanistan before. Mostly, I think, because for the first time, as I already said, um, you know, it, w- it was sort of directly affecting me and, and my friends and colleagues. So the distance that I'd always been able to put between myself and, and you know, what were often very traumatic events and, and stories was no longer there. So, yeah, I mean, if that does come through in the photos, then that's, that's something that photograph that you're talking about was um it's interesting that that um the stillness is is what um you take away from it because mm-hmm. it was it was probably seconds after I I took that photograph that I was bundled up by a group of men who had sort of come out of that crowd and who had obviously seen me photographing I, I was trying to be quite surreptitious at the time because it was a very uh, sensitive area I was right near a, one of the several gates to the airport and this particular gate was being controlled and secured by the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. CIA, and an Afghan militia that they had control over. And um, there was a lot of, you know, obviously you can't hear this in the photograph. There was a lot of yeah. um, gunfire and a lot of noise and a lot of tension, um, it, again, in the, in the periphery of, of that photograph. And yeah, some of these men had obviously seen me photographing and were suspicious of me, which is mm. entirely reasonable. And yeah, they bundled me up and stripped my camera off me and my bag and took me over to where the CIA and um, and some of their militia members were and, and hand, handed me over to them. And fortunately, it was all sorted out, but it was um, I was pretty pretty worried there for a minute. And um, yeah, that that whatever stillness is apparent in that photograph didn't didn't um, last long in my well you can have stillness and hold a sense of tension can't you but then obviously have the the following chaos it really is a really interesting image it's all subjective isn't it how people take and receive photographs and that's another thing you know when you're putting a book out into the world everyone's going to have different responses to some of what you're putting out you know, mm-hmm. you don't have control anymore over yeah. it. You can put your words there and you can put your photographs out there, but then it's out there. Mm. What are some of those other responses that you've had? Are there any that have particularly surprised you or or intrigued you or changed your mind about any of your own photographs? Mm. Yeah, I mean, like everything in the world, we we all come to it with different experiences and the most evocative responses to the book for me have come from Afghans and I've always um, been very circumspect and reluctant showing the book to Afghans, um, particularly those who, some of them to whom I've, I've shown it in Australia are in Australia because they, they left at that time for, for the reasons that we've been talking about. And so it's to see the, the images of um, what led up to the period that, that, that saw them leave themselves is um oh you know it's it's um it's pretty heartbreaking because while you know you and I might be able to look back and reflect on photographs of family albums from from our childhood and reflect on them fondly mm. if sentimentally 
the Afghans that I'm referring to who are looking at them have been forced to leave the lives that are depicted in the book um, or, the, or the, the city or the country um, as they're depicted in the book. And they don't know whether they'll ever be able to go back. So the, the you know, memory for them is, is a, is a burden in, in um, many ways. And then of course, seeing the, the, the more, the, the photographs later in the book um, from that time where everyone was trying to get out or a lot of people were trying to get out, mm. you know, obviously traumatic for, for very you know, obvious reasons that um, bringing up that, that period, um, you know, probably one of the most traumatic periods of their lives. And um, so, yeah, it's, um, I, I don't think I've shown the book to an Afghan who hasn't first cried and then closed the book mm. before getting very, far into it so it's um and some i know have um said you know it's it's sitting on the coffee table but i can't look at it yet and um you know there will there will come a time yeah it's understandable mm. like that's a very human response mm. it's hard enough for someone who has that distance as you say and that privilege mm -hmm. to be in australia and to mm. see these images so yeah i can't really imagine it it does take me to a photograph which I had to ask you about because I think it's probably one of the ones that affected me the most and I'm not sure whether this is the same for others who've spoken to you and it is about that thing about context as well when you you first see this image and it is one of the earlier ones as well from October 2015 in Kunduz province and it's a photograph of a patient a 43 year old man and father of four mm -hmm. Benazar Muhammad Nazar He's lying out on a, an operating table in this room and there's an old air conditioner on the wall and there's looks like there's blood stains on the wall there and he's tied down really on this operating table and there's something covering his head and this kind of board, a very small square board covering part of his body the most sensitive parts, but then there's his limbs sitting out. Mm. And I don't know, there's dust and debris and fallen windows. And then you just see this man or this person and you just go, wow, how is he still there? Why was he left there? And what happened to him? And how could this be that he's in a hospital and this is what happens? And I know it's a very naive thing now to say when we're looking at Gaza and the number of hospitals that have been attacked and bombed because this was all happening in Afghanistan and other places in the Middle East. But I mean, it just, it really gets you in the stomach for me at least. And I wonder how you experienced that because you do provide some of the context in your writing on this particular family and there are other images of his daughter and wife as well so you see the aftermath of his death and their mourning his passing a month later as well in another photograph what was your experience as a photographer of that particular scene because that was a week after he had passed away it was an american gunship who had mistakenly thought it was a, a Taliban command center. It's a long story that led up to, to me taking that photograph. But at the end of September, 2015, I was in Kabul and I was out at dinner with some friends and we started hearing that the Taliban were attacking this city, the city of Kunduz, a city in Northern Afghanistan. And pretty soon it became apparent that they had taken control of the city. And this was the first uh, major Afghan city that the Taliban had taken control of in 15 years at that point, uh, since the beginning of the war. It was a significant moment in the war and it, it signaled a, a pretty significant changing of, of the, the dynamics of the war. And so I pretty quickly started to make inquiries about trying to get to Kunduz to try and cover what was clearly going to be a, a military operation to try and retake the city from the Taliban. And while I was trying to get access with the Afghan National Army to get to embed with them and to join their soldiers in, on this operation, the American forces who were involved in that operation, as you mentioned, bombed this hospital, which they thought had been overrun by the Taliban. And um, they 
completely destroyed the hospital and um, it was evident that um, several dozen people had been killed and injured, but not a lot else was known because um, there was very little access to the area. The fighting in the city was still going on. And, and so my efforts to get to Kunduz, the city, narrowed a little bit and I started focusing on getting to that very hospital. So getting to the city took several days of um, commercial airlines and then waiting in a military base, uh, waiting on the helicopter landing zone of a, a military base as helicopters came and went and came and went and didn't have uh, enough room to take me and a couple of colleagues. Eventually, we were allowed onto a helicopter that was headed for Kunduz and it was so packed that um, there were no seats left and I ended up sitting on the a, a coffin that was loaded with a, the dead body of, a, of an Afghan soldier and um, and we flew to Kunduz to a major military base there and basically spent the next five days pretty much cordoned off in this military base because the Afghan soldiers there didn't want to let us out and be responsible for the, the risk that would be required to you know, get either into the city or um, or to the hospital. We eventually managed to get out of the base with a, a sympathetic um, Afghan um, National Army captain who let us come with him one day and we sort of slipped our public affairs official who, who had been assigned to keep, keep watch of us. We slipped him and we um, and we got out of the base and then we got on the edge of the city where these soldiers were part of a, a, a mission to corral some of the remaining Taliban fighters. And, and it was at that point that I kind of slipped this group of soldiers that we were with and coordinating with people from Doctors Without Borders who ran the hospital. I managed to get into the city and um, and into the hospital, which no one aside from the people who survived and left the hospital about a week earlier had been inside up to that point. So no one really knew what was left and in what state the hospital was in. And so yeah, I, I got inside the hospital and it was um, you know it was still there were still um, unexploded shells that had been fired from the the gunship that were lying around. There were several dead bodies still in the in the hallways and on beds and on the ground in the wards. Um, the roof was caving in everywhere. The vast majority of the, the hospital had been you know burnt beyond recognition. And um, just before I was about to leave, because the the light was fading and I wanted to get out of the city before um, it was dark and and back to the military base because nighttime brings a whole other raft of of risks in a situation like that. So um, I was mm. I was working as quickly as I possibly could, and just before I was about to leave, I I saw this a set of those um, swinging doors that you know from any hospital around the world, and um, a sign above it that said operating theatres and it didn't look that badly damaged. So I sort of thought twice about going in there, mm. but I, in the end, I pushed through the doors and looked in one operating theatre and took a few photos. There was some damage, but it, um, not like the rest of the hospital. Then I moved to another operating theatre, which was more badly damaged, but it hadn't been burnt like the, the rest of the hospital that I'd seen to that point. And as my eyes adjusted to the light, I could see that there was, a body on the operating table that was still, you know, attached by the wrists and ankles to the, to that, um, you know, almost crucifix like operating mm. table. And there was still a, um, a, a cloth that was draped over his torso. So I suppose it's if a, um, if a patient regains consciousness during the operation, they don't see the operation that's taking place. And he still had the, um, I think it's called an X-fix, like a, a steel, stainless steel skeleton that sets the bone back in place that, that was being operated on. And um, yeah, and I, I I quickly sort of clocked that this was a, quite a significant scene and mm. it was very, you know, emblematic of a, of a, a, a scene that had played out many times in Afghanistan where Americans had mistakenly bombed a, a target that they shouldn't have um, mm. you know, many times where weddings were, were bombed um, where celebratory gunfire had been mistaken for aggressive gunfire 
and um and so i stayed in that operating theater for a few minutes being very still being very conscious of the time moving around and, and photographing from several angles and 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 then you know eventually making my way out of the hospital and and back to where i'd left these soldiers and and then back to the base for the night and and flew back to Kabul in the morning and it was in the weeks following that that um, discussions between my editors and I and, and even MSF who were very concerned about how a photograph like this might be perceived by the Afghan public who they understandably believed might be upset with MSF for having allowed a, the dead body of an Afghan, of a Muslim man, to not be buried for that long after a, after a death. And um, eventually... We decided not to run the photograph. I was working for an American outlet called Foreign Policy, and we decided not to publish that photograph until we found out more about the man depicted in it and his family and and why he was there and um and and you know about his life leading up to that point. And and so about a month later, we eventually tracked down the family and spoke to them, and they felt very strongly that. They wanted this photograph to be published. They knew that it was very unlikely that they would receive any kind of justice. And so I think that they thought that acknowledgement of what had happened to them and to their husband would be some you know, vindication or at least an acknowledgement of what had happened, which so many Afghans who had suffered the same fate did not receive. In the description that you have about his backstory, you know, the way that he got injured, it just seems so it could have happened to anyone. What mm. happened to him? You know, mm. that he was checking, he was a security guard checking on a jewelry store that he worked at to make sure that it was obviously secure and he got shot in the thigh. Mm. And here he is in an operating room and mm. this is what happens. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the idea that in international law you're not meant to target a hospital a healthcare facility and the word mistaken or mistakenly you know it gets used so liberally and i think misused Mm. there's a lot of intelligence Mm. (laughs) and monitoring and high-tech you know sources Mm. and it's medicine sans frontier you know who had been in contact several times with the american military to ensure that they were aware that the hospital was still functioning. They had provided the coordinates of the hospital. They'd put a big flag on the roof with their emblem. And yeah, it still wasn't enough. And I, I think the the difference is that, you know, whether or not it, it was a legitimate mistake or not, the problem is when you're fighting a war, mistakes have such huge consequences, you know, in comparison to if you or I make a mistake, we we move on in our work. Usually we, we will hopefully yeah. move on, but, um, but yeah, the consequences are so, so great. And yeah, as you said, in we're seeing that in Gaza at the moment and mm-hmm. the, the, what what's happening in, in Gaza at the moment is, is like what happened in Kunduz just a hundred times over. Yeah. You know, it feels like that. Arguably more punitive. It doesn't feel like it's a mistake. They're saying, well, actually, no, we think that they're in the basement, so we're going to use snipers and shoot through the windows. Mm. Yeah. You say that in total 42 people were killed in that attack and 37 were injured, so obviously it's going to have huge repercussions for at least 80 of the you know people and their families and the people they knew. As you say, it happened over and over again in so many different circumstances. Just to close out the conversation, because I feel that there's so many other, I guess, aspects of life that I haven't got to ask and I I won't get to ask, but there are a couple of threads or points that are a bit different in this book that I just wanted to touch on. Part of the striking contrast we were talking about before about, you know, the everyday lives of Afghanis, and there's obviously a lot of culturally specific circumstances, but also economically specific circumstances, and you, you kind of raise or draw in some of the issues around opium and poppy crops and people needing to get by. And we hear that, we heard that in some of the accusations around war crimes is that, you know, people were tending to their fields of of poppy crops. And, you know, like these are things that are kind of essential to, to the economy of Afghanistan in many ways. There are kind of moments of reflection when I was looking through your photographs thinking how we here would go, oh, drugs, you know, 
mm-hmm. these are really bad. Um, you know, but that's our lens, I guess, as a you know, mm-hmm. in a Western country where we're not growing, well, some people might be growing poppy crops, mm-hmm. but probably legally and, you know, under a set of regulations in Afghanistan, this is kind of a, a part of life. And, it, you know, there is a political element to it with the Taliban, for example. But could you tell us a little bit about how the everyday plays into your photographs in that sense that might feel quite alien from us? It's not our everyday, mm-hmm. but for them, you know, this is something that it's not benign, as you show there are people who are severely addicted and need to go cold turkey and look really mm-hmm. affected by it. But there's also a kind of deep necessity to um, mm. survive and live for some people. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The opium industry is, I mean, it employed probably millions of Afghans or, or millions of Afghans at least relied on the opium crop, which... Yeah, as you said, it, it does have immediate impacts in Afghanistan where there's a very high rate of addiction, but it's also the source of income for at least livelihood of millions of Afghans. So it's not seen as a, I mean, the, the illicit nature of it is, you know, it's something that the governments or those who are in control impose on a, on a crop that, you know, grows very, very well in Afghanistan and to an extent thrives on insecurity because it's usually in times of insecurity that people are, you know, ironically able to get away with growing it. Doubly ironic is the fact that the Taliban, now that they're in power, have, are actually cracking down on the production of opium and, and have, have banned the cultivation of it. And there's probably 95%, it's some, something like that, less opium being produced now than at the time the American military were in the um, controlling the international forces there and the, and the Republican government was in charge. The reason the Taliban don't see um, hypocrisy in that is that they allowed it to be uh, cultivated during the war because they were in a war economy and they needed to um, make compromises to fund their war. And that was one of them. It was a very effective way of funding their insurgency. But now that they are, they are at a time of quote unquote peace it's seen as religiously taboo and and so and and so it's been banned but yeah it's you know these these kinds of ebbs and flows are very very normal parts of of um, day-to-day life in afghanistan and that as is unfortunately the the very dramatic and often violent changes of government which of which there's been five in the last 45 years and so you know although life under the taliban now is has become vastly worse for a large portion of the population particularly women it's something that afghans have have become not immune to but um, immune to the effects of and it's no surprise and so they um afghans do have a i mean it's 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 cliched the the term resilience the amount it's used to describe Afghans, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know, there, there is a, a resilience, the likes of which that, you know, you and I would find very hard to to discover in ourselves under the same circumstances, I think. Just to reflect on not just the resilience of Afghanistan, but perhaps the beauty of it, because there are a few photos in here that do depict the beauty of it. And one of them that I wanted to just end our chat on was the dawn photograph in Warzut's in Badakhshan Wakan Corridor, which is a village that lies almost 3,000 metres above sea level between the borders of Pakistan, Tajikistan and China. To describe it, it's this gorgeous mist of mountains, slightly dusted with snow, and it could be, I don't know, anywhere really. When I was looking at it, I was just so enamoured with the scenery of it. And there, you know, you don't really see humans in the picture. You see the natural landscape at its most beautiful. And I just wondered if you could, I guess, reflect on your time in Afghanistan. And was that a reflection of one of those moments for you when you stood back where you happened to be in a village and there's a war going on or there's violence and disadvantage and trauma, but then, you know, there's this natural scene that has taken you and you've taken this photograph. Yeah, I was I was constantly awed by the, the scenery of Afghanistan, um, particularly as a photographer. 
when everything you photograph has a backdrop of these you know vast mountains that the mountains you're talking about in that photograph are you know they're probably higher than our highest mountain but it's just a you know it's just another valley in afghanistan and the light there is incredible it's, it's a lot softer than we're used to in australia and then obviously the the, the people who are populating that landscape uh, i'm endlessly curious about them and yeah I, I, the 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 question of the juxtaposition of the the violence and the war with this you know beautiful natural beauty and the um, humanity and warmth and sense of humor of the people was you know i suppose like any good story or any good book or movie they coexisted and and all melded together to create this you know this fascinating social and and physical landscape that is this story that will never end but which traverses these you know really dramatic and touching and heartbreaking chapters yeah will you go back yes if they let me yeah well i'll be really interested to see what comes of mm. it yeah mm. andrew thank you so much for taking the time and being so thoughtful in your responses to my probing questions i really do appreciate it and uh thank you and thank you to melbourne university publishing for drawing your work together in this way because it's been a real experience for me to get to see Afghanistan through your eyes and also through the eyes of Afghanis because I feel that you have really captured or it seems that as an outsider you've captured them really well so thank you so much. Thank you Amy and thanks for your very thoughtful and probing and considered questions and and um, perspective on it. It's really interesting for me to hear because the a lot of the photographs, because I've seen them so much, have have lost some of their meaning to me. So it's it's really nice for me to hear how they what they mean to other people who are seeing them for the first time. Oh well, no, I'm really glad to hear that. I've been speaking with Andrew Quilty, who is an award-winning Australian photojournalist. We've been talking about this is Afghanistan. 2014 to 2021, which has been published by Mygonia Press, which is an imprint of Melbourne University Publishing. And Andrew is the recipient of nine Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley for his work on Afghanistan, as you can tell where he was based for a number of years and has received many other awards as well for not only his photos, but his investigations into massacres committed by a CIA-backed Afghan militia as well. And do check out his other book, August in Kabul, which was released in 2022. If our conversation today has raised any issues for you, and if you're a person who's been affected by overseas conflicts, you can call the Witness to War National Multilingual Telephone Hotline on 1800 845 198. The free hotline is run by the Forum of Australian Services to Survivors of Torture and Trauma and provides trauma counselling to people in Australia affected by ongoing global wars and overseas conflicts. Alternatively, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.